On the Slay Queens podcast, we take a deep dive into the dark side of the rainbow. This isn't just a cheesy catchphrase. It is a note to remember that the topics we discuss can be very graphic and lurid in nature. Listener discretion has been advised. Welcome back, everybody. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Slay Queens podcast. The podcast where we... Take a deep dive into the dark side of the rainbow. Naturally. I mean, that's what we naturally. Do, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we often engage in some sort of tomfoolery and, and shenanigans I, and shenanigans. And I throw that in because I've recently discovered what a fan Ashley is of the word tomfoolery. <laughs> I really love it every time you use it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and anything that I can do to bring just an extra like little, little scotch. Is that the right word? Scotch? A scotch. My mother uses scotch. that word all the time. <laughs> a little scotch of joy into your life. Like I'm willing to do that for you. And Thank once you. again, hi, Ashley's mom, because I know she was <laughs> Yeah, little mom. We always somehow work her in somehow. Yes. So we have, I think, maybe a lengthy episode for the Queens, Kings, and folks today. Yes, this will be a good road trip episode. Absolutely, it will be. So maybe we cut the shenanigans and tomfoolery just just by a scotch. Just Um, a scotch. (laughs) Just a scotch. We just cut it by a scotch. And uh, we jump right into our rainbow star, you know, just for the sake of saving some time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's do that. Rainbow because we're queer, star because we're giving shout outs, thank yous, making announcements or acknowledgements and giving recommendations. So, Ashley, would you. Per you. <laughs> yeah. Per... I, like... <laughs> I had to I like mouth that. it to her. Per you, <laughs> would you like me to start? Yes, please. <laughs> okay. We just wanted to give a great big shout out and a great big thank you. So, we're combining those this week to the folks at Core Extra Podcast. We just got an amazing rate review from them and just lovely shout outs on Twitter and our social medias. We're just super, super, super appreciative that people take the time to appreciate the things that we're doing. And that's the sort of positive feedback and affirmation that really makes me want to keep coming back and and doing this. So. Thank you guys. Thank you. And everyone in between so much for that. And Ashley, we have a special announcement today. Would you like to share that with the folks? Our announcement being that we have a very, very, very special guest. Special guest. Yes, absolutely. We would like to welcome... Amy. Amy. I was going to say, do you want to say your own name? But I just said it. So welcome, Amy. (laughs) We finally made it. We did. We did. Yeah. We actually talked about, we gave an update to the listeners. It's an episode that of course, everybody will have heard by the time they hear this episode, but you might not have heard it yet. We did give an update. I letting on it today. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. We wanted people to know that we hadn't forgotten that we had done a contest where we were giving a lucky listener. We hope that you feel lucky. <laughs> Y'all- I never win anything, so I feel extremely lucky. (laughs) Okay, good. The opportunity to come uh, tell stories with us. So Amy is here today, and we are so excited, so excited to have you, and we are so excited to hear your story. And we're also excited to let you 
be the one to give recommendations for the week. So what you got? Okay. So my recommendation is that everybody should get the audiobook version of Megan Rapinoe's bio, One Life. She reads it herself. It was fabulous. It's about her life growing up. It's about soccer, but she also focuses in on social justice and how she's sort of made that leap almost unknowingly into the fray and then what that's meant for her moving forward. And it was just so inspiring and I can't recommend it highly enough. That's awesome. I am a huge fan of hers, obviously. Me too, 100%. (laughs) But I'm such a huge fan of people who write a book and then they narrate it themselves as part of the audio book. It just adds something a bit more special to it for me. So thank you for that recommendation. I'm excited about that. So do we have anything else? Ashley, you? I always have like the first one and I always have so much, but like this week, everything's been kind of a flop. So I'm just going to go ahead and pass it on to you. (laughs) Well, I mean, you've likely been very busy with uh, the holiday week. That is true. A lot of the rest of us have. I randomly happened upon an episode of Your Own Backyard. Ashley, do you remember me talking to you about this one? It's been probably a year. It's at least been several months. It's the podcast that's dedicated to the Kristen Smart case. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So they had done something like seven or eight episodes as part of the just initial series. And because there weren't like a ton of developments in that case, it's not moving forward or at least hadn't been moving forward. That was kind of the, he put things on pause. That was Mm -hmm. kind of where he was going to leave it until there were any developments. Well, I noticed this week that there was a new episode that had been released. Oh, shoot. Uh, Yeah. So if anybody's interested, I don't want to give any spoilers. Maybe we'll talk about it on the next episode. But there have been some developments in that case. And if you're interested, go listen to the episode and uh, we'll talk about it again some more. So yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we have stories. We have stories to tell. And Ashley's going to kick us off. We are go. I will kick us off. Okay. Yes, Dool. So yeah, this, I'm excited to tell this story because it's not something that I would have, like I've said before, can consider doing on a regular episode because it is such a moment in history, but I'm really excited to have the opportunity to tell the story. So I'm just going to kind of jump right in because I'm sure most people uh, at least have heard of this at least once in their life, if you're part of the community or even not part of the community. So if you're listening to this podcast, I would hope yes. that it's something you're <laughs> vaguely familiar with. Yeah. You have an idea of yeah. uh, part of history. Okay. So the Stonewall riots also referred to as the Stonewall uprising or the Stonewall rebellion were a series of spontaneous demonstrations by members of the LGBTQIA plus community in response to a police raid that began in the early morning hours of June 28th, 1969 at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan, New York City. (laughs) Patrons of the Stonewall, other village lesbians and gay bars, and the neighborhood street people fought back when the police became violent. The riots were widely considered to constitute one of the most important events leading to the gay liberation movement and the 20th century fight for the LGBTQIA rights in the United States. Gay Americans in the 1950s and 1960s faced an anti-gay legal system, which I don't really feel like is too different nowadays, but okay. 
I definitely think we've taken a few steps forward and then a few steps back, at least right. in the last four-ish we'll years. Talk about it later, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, see? Oh, yeah. We should also add that we're kind of doing these stories in, like, a chronological order. So that's the reason of the season and how we're going in the order that we are. Yeah, so I'm way back here in the 1950s and 60s. Early homosexual groups in the U.S. sought to prove that gay people could be assim- could assimilate into society. The last years of the 1960s, however, were contentious as many social and political movements were active, including the civil rights movement, the counterculture of the 1960s, and the anti-Vietnam War movement. These influences, along with liberal environment of Greenwich Village, served as catalysts for the Stonewall riots. When police raided Stonewall Inn in the morning of June 28th, it came as... It came as a surprise that the bar was not tipped off this time. Armed with the warrant, police officers entered the club, roughed up patrons, and finding bootlegged alcohol arrested 13 people, including employees and people violating the state's gender-appropriate clothing statute, which meant that like female officers would take like suspected cross-dressing people into the bathroom and check their sex, which is super invasive (laughs) you know like that's all i can really say about that absolutely it is fed up with the constant police harassment and social discrimination angry patrons and neighborhood residents hung around outside of the bar rather than disperse becoming increasingly agitated as the events unfolded and people were aggressively manhandled at one point an officer hit a lesbian over the head as he forced her into a police van she shouted to onlookers to act which incited the crowd to begin throwing pennies bottles, cobblestones, and other objects at the police. Within minutes, a full-blown riot involving hundreds of people began. The police, a few prisoners, and a village voice writer barricaded themselves in the bar, which the mob attempted to set on fire after breaching the barricade repeatedly. The fire department and a riot squad were eventually able to douse the flames, rescue those inside Stonewall, and disperse the crowd. But the protests, sometimes involving thousands of people, continued in the area for five more days flaring up at, w- at one point after the Village Voice published its account of the riots. Ooh, intense, right? Definitely. And I've always found it really interesting that the police hid out inside the very bar at which they had taken all of this action against. You know, it was, right. it was kind of ironic in the fact that they allowed that space to become a safe space for them. <laughs> right. As opposed to... yeah. Yeah, the queer community who had used it as a safe space for themselves. So Right, was, we were in here to try to save ourselves from you, but now here you are in here, but like, I'm not going to hurt you for being in here. Just come in the safe haven. Like, let's, let's all be in here together and let's yeah. try to be safe together. Yeah. Okay, so let me see. So kind of now I wanted to just go back and like kind of give a little bit of like the history of Stonewall Inn, which I learned things that I didn't know that is so interesting to me. The crime syndicate saw profit in catering to shunned gay clientele, and by the mid-1960s, the Genovese crime family controlled most of Greenwich Village gay bars, which, like, the Genovese family is one of the five families, I guess. There's, like, five mob families that everybody knows about that's kind of, like, rules everything, and that's one of them. So in 1966, they purchased Stonewall Inn, which used to be a straight bar and restaurant, cheaply renovated it, and reopened it the next year as a gay bar. Stonewall Inn was registered as a type of private like bottle bar, which meant that they did not require a liquor license because the patrons were supposed to bring in their own liquor. So like a BYOB. Yeah, exactly. And it was kind of like this idea like, oh, it's not a gay bar. It's a private bar. Okay. It's like a, it's a private bar. So it's an exclusive bar, but there's no like 
people just knew it was a gay bar, right? Okay. So club attendees, they, they didn't have to sign their names in a book when they entered uh, so that the, ma- the club could maintain its false exclusivity. The Genovese family bribed New York's sixth police precinct to, to ignore the activities that occurred during the club. So it's like, yeah, they legally had this place, but they also paid the cops not to like investigate the fact that it actually was a gay bar. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and I think that was pretty common during like prohibition as well. Is exactly they off law enforcement not to come in and bust them for actually having and serving alcohol. Exactly. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, we've all seen mobster movies and things about the mafia. We all know that, like, that's part of the story, right? You have enough money, you can pay the police. I mean, everybody has a price, right? I did think it was hella interesting, though, like, to learn that basically gay bars were able to operate illegally slash legally because of the mafia. Who would have thought, right? But I guess you've got to make your money somehow. And if that's a market that you can cash in on, even if you don't, quote unquote, agree with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all about the money, right? Like I said, everyone has a price. And that was considered illegal activity at the time, right? Homosexuality yes. was still considered illegal activity. And we know yes. that these mob families, they made the majority of their money. Like they capitalized on these air quotes, illegal activities. Absolutely. So if you That's a good point. Of, yeah. If you think about it like that, which I hadn't prior to today, really, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but if you think about it like that, I mean, I guess it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. All right. So without police interference, the crime family could cut costs how they saw fit. The club lacked a fire exit, running water behind the bar to wash glass, clean toilets that didn't routinely overflow and palatable drinks that weren't watered down beyond recognition. What's more, the mafia reportedly blackmailed the club's wealthier patrons who wanted to keep their sexuality a secret. Nonetheless, Stonewall Inn quickly became an important Greenwich Village institution. It was large and relatively cheap to enter. It welcomed drag queens who received a bitter reception at other gay bars and clubs. It was a nightly home for uh, many runaways and homeless gay youths who panhandled or shoplifted to afford the entry fee. And it was one of the few, if not only, gay bars that still allowed dancing, which I found was interesting that people were running gay bars, but they're like, no dancing here, just drinking and going home with each other. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) I mean, I don't dance, so I can get into that. I mean, that's fair, right? Like (laughs) shake it once. That's fine. Shake it twice. That's okay. Shake it three times. You're dancing. Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Raids were still a fact of life, but usually corrupt cops would tip off mafia run bars before they occurred, allowing the owners to sash the alcohol sold without a liquor license, obviously, and hide other illegal activities. In fact, the NYPD had stormed Stonewall Inn just a few days before the riot inducing raid. It catered to an assortment of patrons and was known for popular and known to be popular among the poorest and most marginalized people in the gay community. And this includes uh, butch lesbians, effeminate young men, drag queens, male sex workers, transgender people and homeless youths. Basically, people who weren't hiding their sexuality is kind of what I get from that. While police raids on gay bars were still routine in the 1960s, officers quickly lost control of the situation at the Stonewall Inn on June 28th, as I've said three times now. Tensions between New York City police and gay residents of Greenwich Village erupted into more protests the next evening and again several nights later, which we've said for like, I think I said for five days. Uh, Within weeks, village residents quickly organized into activist groups to concentrate efforts on establishing places for gay men and lesbians to open up about their sexual orientation without fear of being arrested. 
So this is kind of like the silver lining, if you will, to everything, which is kind of the later years. After the Stonewall riots, gay men and lesbians in New York City faced gender, race, class, and generational obstacles to becoming a cohesive community. Within six months, two gay activist organizations were formed in New York, concentrating on confrontational tactics, and three newspapers were established to promote rights for gay men and lesbians. A year after the uprising, to mark the anniversary on June 28th, 1970, the first gay pride marches took place in New York City, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. The anniversary of the riots were also commemorated in Chicago, and similar marches were organized in other cities. Within a few years, gay rights organizations were founded across the U.S. and the world. The Stonewall National Monument was established on the site in 2016. And I wrote in parentheses, I wrote, thanks, Obama. (laughs) (laughs) Because yes, you heard right. In fact, on June 24th, 2016, President Barack Obama officially designated the Stonewall National Monument, marking it the United States' first national monument designated for an LGBT historic site. Dedication ceremony was attended by New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and a whole slew of senators and people that are very notable and you kind of want to like applaud them for being there sort of thing. Some attendees saw the dedication as important because the Orlando, Florida nightclub shooting, which had occurred two weeks prior to the dedication, had claimed the lives of 49 people, many of them gay Latin Americans. The National Monument status encompasses a 7.7 acre area that includes the Stonewall Inn, Christopher Street Park, and the block of Christopher Street bordering that park. The National Park Foundation formed a new nonprofit organization to raise $2 million in funds for a ranger station, visitor center, community activities, and interpretive exhibits for the monument. In October 2017, a rainbow LGBT flag was raised on the monument, making it the first officially mandated LGBT flag at a federal monument. Today, LGBT prides are held annually throughout the world toward the end of June to mark the Stonewall riots. Stonewall 50 Worldwide NYC 2019 commemorated the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall uprising with city officials estimating 5 million attendees in Manhattan on June 6, 2019. New York City Police Commissioner James P. O'Neill rendered a formal apology on behalf of the New York City Police Department for the actions of its officers at Stonewall in 1969. Yay. (laughs) And that's that. And that's that. We love a happy ending. Right? It is a good happy ending in a way, right? Yeah. And we don't always have happy endings. um, No. (laughs) So I have always been kind of shocked at how little people in the community actually know about Stonewall and the events that transpired and the people that literally fought for the freedoms that we all have and enjoy now as a community. So does anybody need a break, by the way? (laughs) I guess I should have asked. (laughs) All right. So touching on a lot of the things that you've mentioned, but also pointing out some people specifically and honoring them and honoring their actions, I thought that I would dive a little bit deeper into that side of the rainbow. I don't want to call it the dark side. Let's call it um, brightish side. (laughs) In the rainbow, rainbow side. Yeah, exactly. And talk about a couple of people by the name of, or by the names of Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Mm -hmm. 
I scripted this very much the same way that I traditionally script everything. I like to open you, tell you who I'm talking about, and then give you kind of where that situation went. So let's talk about Marsha P. Johnson. And I apologize if I say Marsha P. Washington at some point. For some reason in my head, it's always Marsha P. Washington. And I know that I'm going to screw that up today. So (laughs) if I say that, if it slips out, I apologize. I apologize to her memory and her legacy. Don't at me and know that I, I mean Johnson and that I know who this woman is. I know what she represents for our community. And I'm paying homage the best way that I can. Just eyes on the script, Wayne, okay? Eyes on the script. <laughs> All right. I'm going to try. I get distracted by you two yeah, lovely yeah. ladies. <laughs> okay. So I do want to thank a woman by the name. It's either Gillian or Jillian Brockle, B-R-O-C-K-E-L-L, because I used a lot of what she wrote in an article on uh, the WashingtonPost.com for this information. So used a lot of her information. Thank you so much for uh, this publication. It was just so well-written and so well-done. I didn't feel the need to deviate from a lot of what she had here. All right, so the P in Marsha P. Johnson stood for pay it no mind. <laughs> which I, just I love that. Which I just absolutely <laughs> love. And when people got too nosy about her, that's exactly what she would tell them. Pay it no mind. Prince say, however, that the world heeded that advice, giving Johnson a transgender activist who played a vital role in the Stonewall riots and the resulting gay rights movement that it launched far less attention than she deserved. However, in June of 2019, that finally changed. As New York prepared to mark its 50th anniversary of the Stonewall, along with its pride celebration, the city announced plans to build a statue honoring Marsha and her friend Sylvia Rivera, who also championed the LGBTQ plus rights. This would be the world's first permanent public monument honoring transgender women. So (laughs) who are these women and why were they so amazing? Well, first let's talk about who they are. Then we'll talk about why they were so amazing. Marsha B. Johnson was born in 1945 and she was actually raised in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Though assigned male at birth, Marsha identified as transgender from an early age and even reportedly began wearing dresses as young as five years old. This, unfortunately, according to Marsha, also made her the target of teasing and sexual assault at the hands of neighborhood boys. Mm -hmm. As soon as she graduated from high school, Marsha moved to New York City with only a bag of clothes and $15 to her name. Though the Greenwich Village, which was or is considered to be one of the most tolerant places for LGBTQ plus people at the time, Residents of the area and law enforcement alike frequently harassed and discriminated against anyone that didn't conform to sexual or gender norms. For these reasons, it was common for people like Marsha to become homeless or to support themselves financially with sex work. Despite these hard circumstances, Marsha was known for her generous and optimistic personality. She was known to dress in flashy homemade outfits, and she often wore handmade flower crowns in her hair, or even sometimes (laughs) Christmas lights, which I think if anybody who has any familiarity with Marsha P. Johnson pictures her, we all get that very famous photo of her like holding a drink with that flower crown in her hair, just like smiling (laughs) bigger than anybody has ever smiled in the history of all smiles. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So that's, uh, that's what I picture at least. Okay. So It was during this time of her life that Marsha met her friend, Sylvia Rivera, who Sylvia would later credit with having saved her life, a life which had been marked by hellish trials from the very beginning. 
Sylvia's father had abandoned her at birth and her mother had died of suicide when she was only three years old. As a child, Sylvia, who had also been assigned male at birth, would identify as transgender and was often caught trying on her grandmother's clothing and makeup, for which she would then be beat. By the age of 11, Sylvia fled her abusive home and was living on the streets of New York City as a runaway child sex worker. It was there in 1963 that she met Marsha, who gave Sylvia a home, stability, and the love that she had never experienced from family before. She was like a mother to me, uh, Sylvia would later report. Yeah, so that's who these women were in the early parts of their lives. And let's talk about why they're such badasses and everybody should know about them. (laughs) All right. So there are many stories about Marcia and Sylvia and what they did in the early morning hours of June 28th of 1969 when the Stonewall riots erupted. However, almost everyone agrees that they were there and they were amongst the first to resist. The most prevalent legend has Marsha P. Johnson throwing the, quote, shot glass heard around the world. So <laughs> according to this, and it's, it's backed up by many Stonewall historians, it's extremely likely that in response to police arresting and brutalizing her biracial lesbian friend, whose name was Stormy, that Marsha P. Johnson threw a shot glass, narrowly missing a police officer's head, breaking a mirror behind him and thus inciting other patrons like Sylvia Rivera to join in the resistance. And I did want to take a moment here to talk about Stormy, whose last name was Delaveri. Delaveri? I did look up the pronunciation, but I'm never good at the pronunciations, even after I looked them up. Um, (laughs) Me too. I'm right there with you. Yeah. So I did want to talk about Stormy. Now, I did read some accounts that Stormy preferred male pronouns or gender neutral pronouns. But everything that I read like collectively was really inconsistent about whether or not Stormy, how she identified or how they identified. So I am kind of under the suspicion that if Stormy were alive and well today, Stormy might be someone that we consider transgender as well a transgender man, but she's often referred to, or they are often referred to as a butch lesbian or the butch lesbian that police were arresting or brutalizing who started calling out to the other patrons who you actually refer to in uh, your research as well, Ashley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was Stormy. There is a possibility that she or that was good. That was good how that worked out. (laughs) Yeah. Male pronouns. But again, there was no consistency. So I kind of couldn't substantiate it. So we're going with with what we know. And uh, what we know is that she was or they were assigned female at birth and that she's referred to in most writings or most accounts of her life as a she. In the wake of the riots, Marcia and Sylvia were frequent organizers and participants at gay rights protests. They also founded the Street Trans Action Revolutionaries, or the Star House, which was intended to shelter homeless LGBTQ youth. This is the first shelter of its kind ever in our country. So that is amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. But as the gay rights movement grew, some wanted drag queens, gender queers, and transgender people like Marsha and Sylvia to be pushed out. Cisgendered, Caucasian, gay and lesbian activists took the approach that they were no different from their straight peers and thought that that argument would be harder to make if someone like Marsha showed up in high heels and flowers in her hair. So 
I lost my place. Things came to a head at a pride parade or a pride celebration in March of 1973 when Sylvia, who had reportedly been blocked several times from speaking, took the microphone into her own hand and shouted, if it wasn't for drag queens, there would be no gay liberation. We were the front liners, end quote. Sylvia was then booed off of the stage. Mm-hmm. So gay people are the worst. <laughs> I know, right? Come on. Yeah. I mean, it's just, she was literally making a point that none of us would be here right now if it weren't for the people that you're trying to force out. That's exactly uh, right. Yeah. And it's, it's just really tragic. So tragic, in fact, that she left activism and New York City after this incident. But Marsha stayed. In the mid-1970s, Andy Warhol famously made her the subject of one of his iconic silkscreen portraits. Then in the 1980s, as the AIDS crisis devastated the LGBTQ community, Marcia continued her work marching with activist groups, helping at fundraisers, and even nursing sick friends on their deathbed. Mm -hmm. Then sadly, in July of 1992, Marcia's own life would be cut short when she was found floating in the Hudson River. Her death was quickly ruled a suicide by law enforcement, but after protests from friends and loved ones who insisted that Marcia was not suicidal, the cause of death was changed to an unexplained drowning. According to the LGBTQ plus community at the time, Marcia was repeatedly the victim of violent attacks and many close to her think that she was actually murdered. The case was reopened in 2012 and remains an open investigation to this very day. So... After Marsha's death, Sylvia actually returned to New York City, where she struggled for a period of time with addiction and homelessness. But by 2001, was sober. She was marching in pride parades, and she even helped open another house to shelter homeless LGBTQ youth. In 2002, Sylvia had fallen terminally ill with liver cancer, and the woman even spent the last hours of her life urging the gay leaders that came to her bedside to be more inclusive of everyone in the queer community. I mean, like just down to the last moment. Like tooth and nail. Yeah, she's advocating for inclusion and not... That's the mark of a quality human being. Like you're in that situation and you're thinking about other people and what's going to happen in the future and you're not worried about yourself. And that's just so amazing to me. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And that's just a pure indication of what she wanted the legacy for her life to be. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful thing. And she did, I think she was able to achieve some of that because the Village Voice, which was the nation's first alternative weekly newspaper covering the, quote, counterculture from 1955 to 2018, eulogized Sylvia Rivera as, quote, the Rosa Parks of the modern transgender movement. So just to kind of wrap that up, just a... This is a lot of my own words here. Just to wrap that up, though the stories of these beautiful lives ends kind of on a more somber note, I think we can see some light or take some pride in the fact that even though it took 50 years for it to happen, two women who helped make the Stonewall riots the huge turning point that it was for activism and and rights for the LGBTQ plus community were finally recognized and finally memorialized for the amazing things that they did. And I, as a member of that community, even if it took 50 years, I take so much pride in the fact that it finally happened. And I'm so happy to hear it. And my last little note is a little bit shady, but 
I can shade my own people. I think it's perfectly fair. I speak from firsthand knowledge and experience and Ooh, and, I love this. And I have done some of these things myself. So the last note that I have is so fellas, when the world returns to some semblance of what it was before COVID-19 and you're dancing in your undies at a pride circuit party somewhere, most likely surrounded by a bunch of cis white muscle boys. Remember that it was two transgender women of color and questionably a third transgender person of color who literally fought for you to have that freedom. So. Ooh, say it. <laughs> <laughs> snaps yeah. for you. Snaps for that. Snaps for them. We owe yes. the majority of the privilege that we have and the freedoms we have now as queer people, as people who are members of the LGBTQIA plus community to the actions of these two women and the, their friends and patrons who started the movement that afforded us all of these things. So Mm -hmm. thank you to them. And thank you to Amy for suggesting that we discuss the, the Stonewall riots and that movement and uh, which inspired me to talk about these women specifically so that she could tell us another amazing story. Yeah. So hold on everybody. I forgot how much I love to research. um, Having been out of grad school for (laughs) way more years than that tell you, but I was like, Ooh, this is why I went to school forever. I want to start with, I'm not going to tell you who I'm talking about yet. I want to start with a little bit of the history of hate crime legislation and laws in the United States. And for this first part, um, my sources were the NAACP, Wikipedia, which I don't usually like to cite as a source, but this one was on the up and up the department of justice website, and then biography.com as well. So Let's talk about state hate crime laws first. There are eight categories of hate crime laws. Religious worship interference, race, religion, ethnicity, all lumped into one. Sexual orientation, which is only recognized in 36 states. Gender identity, which is recognized in 21 states. Disability, political affiliation, and age. So there's a wide variety of categories of hate crimes. Now, Three states have no hate crime laws, which is absolutely ridiculous. And Wayne, if you have your bullshit button, now would be the time to hit it. (laughs) I was going to ask if I could interrupt you for just a moment so that we... Whoa, watch your step. Oh no, hit it. There you go, confirmed. Arkansas, Utah which does allow for some harsher sentencing, but doesn't specify categories of crime. So I don't really know how that works and Wyoming. And then up until this year with the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, my very own state of Georgia had no hate crime laws. Thankfully, now we have some on the books, but three states have no hate crime laws. And so I get difficult for people to get the justice they deserve when they are targeted for those kinds of crimes. So federal crime legislation is also really important because it allows the federal government to step in. And all the way back to 1948, there have been laws on the books regulating hate crimes, but clearly not with the broad strokes that that we need today. 1968 is really the the first one that makes some broad statements. Um, It was enacted under Lyndon Johnson. And it made it a crime to use or threaten to use force to willfully interfere with any person because of race, color, religion, or national origin, or because the person is participating in a federally 
protected activities such as public education, employment, jury service, travel, or the enjoyment of public accommodations or helping another person to do so. But you'll notice what's missing there is gender and sexual orientation. And clearly this was back towards the time frame that we were talking about earlier. So those weren't on the books yet. And some other ones that come up in, in 68 and then 1996 with regards to religious hate crimes. And then 1998 happened. And Wayne, I know that, that we talked about this a little bit um, when we were messaging back and forth because I had asked if you guys had ever considered Matthew Shepard's story. And so I'm not going to go into that completely, but I am going to touch on that because this is where our major federal hate crime legislation today comes into effect. So on June 7th of 1998, a man named James Byrd Jr., don't worry, I'll get to Matthew Shepard in a minute, took a ride from three white men who happened to be well-known white supremacists. He had just simply been looking for a ride somewhere and decided to accept a ride from these men. They drove him to a deserted area. They beat him. They wrapped a chain around his ankles and then drove three miles until his head and right arm were severed by a culvert. They dumped his torso along a road in Jasper, Texas. And so it was essentially lynching by dragging. And I probably should have thrown up a trigger warning there. It was just an an absolutely heinous crime. Um, Thankfully, these men were held accountable. Brewer was executed by the state of Texas on September 21st, 2011, making it the first time in Texas history that a white person received a sentence for killing a black person. Ross Bird, the only son of James Bird, was a staunch anti-death penalty advocate, and he publicly protested Brewer's execution, but Texas being the state that it is and having the laws that it has executed him. On April 24th of 2019, so fairly recently, King was also executed by the state of Texas, another participant in this crime, leaving the third member, a man with the last name of Barry, serving a life sentence, and he's up for parole in 2038. So that happened in June. And then in October of that same year, we have the horrible murder of Matthew Shepard. So he arrived in Laramie, Wyoming just a few months or and early or in that year. And then just a few months later, he encountered two men named Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson at a local pub. McKinney and Henderson saw Shepard as an easy target to try to make some money. Um, and they made plans to rob him. In the early hours of October 7th, they lured him away from the bar and drove him to a rural area where they tied him to a slit rail fence, beat him severely with the butt of a pistol and left him to die in the near freezing temperatures of those early morning hours. McKinney later stated that he assumed Shepard was dead when they left, but he was not. He was discovered 18 hours later by a cyclist who at first thought he was a scarecrow tied on the fence as Halloween decorations, and he was still alive. He was rushed to the hospital. He was in a coma for four days just down the hall from McKinney, who actually was there as a result of a fracture to his skull that he received in a brawl later that he had instigated. And so in addition to numerous bruises, welts, and lacerations, Shepard's brainstem was severely damaged. He was suffering from hypothermia. And so he was pronounced dead at 12.53 a.m. on October 12th of 1998. Shortly after, the police found the gun as well as Shepard's shoes and wallet in McKinney's truck. And McKinney and Henderson were arrested and convicted of felony murder and kidnapping, and they both received two consecutive life terms. 
that's just broad strokes of this story. The ladies over at Morbid, Ash and Elena actually did a two episode set on this and it was phenomenal. If it's something that you're interested in or that you feel like you need to know more about, I highly recommend it. But it is pretty intense and very emotional. It was hard for me to listen to and I am not, I am not LGBTQ. I am simply an ally and it was very difficult for me to listen to as well. I struggle a lot with the Matthew Shepard story because that was really at a time that I was coming out and I was for the first time publicly uh, being identified as a gay man. And it shook me to the core because I thought, okay, well, I've just come out of the closet and now maybe I've done it at a time that the world is telling me that it's not safe to do such things. So it definitely shook me. And I would also, if you're interested at all in the story, The Laramie Project is really, really, really well done. If you have the opportunity to watch that in any way, shape or form, I've seen a live production that I thought was great. But I've also seen some recordings that were that were top notch, that show a lot of respect to Matthew Shepard and the family and all the people that were involved in trying to help him and get him the justice that he absolutely deserved. Did you have anything that you wanted to add, Ashley? No, I literally just watched a documentary about Matthew Shepard. So I was just like having a moment while while she was like talking about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so... The thing that got me though is in what I watched, the two boys that lured him did it on a pretense of that they were gay as well, which makes it even scarier to me. That's all. (laughs) That's all. It's a heavy case. And for me, that's the first time that I remember really considering what it might mean for someone to be gay. That was, and that was my sophomore year in college, dating myself heavily here. And so that was sort of my first introduction into what was going on surrounding that community and just how difficult it was to be out in the late 90s and all that that entailed. And it it made an impact on me. All right. So we get to our next Thanks Obama moment. (laughs) Love that. Yay. In 2009, we had legislation passed by Congress and signed by President Obama. Thanks, Obama. Thanks, Obama. Um, That was called the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009. And this act makes it a federal crime to willfully cause bodily injury or attempt to do so using a dangerous weapon because of a victim's actual or perceived race, color, religion, or national origin. The act also extends federal hate crime prohibitions to crimes committed because of the actual or perceived religion, national origin, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability of any person only where the crime affected interstate or foreign commerce occurred within federal special maritime and territorial jurisdiction. It's a whole lot of extra words there. It's the first statute allowing federal criminal prosecution of hate crimes motivated by the victim's actual or perceived sexual orientation or gender identity. And so this one's really important because we have these so-called gay and trans panic laws 11 states have actually banned the use of that defense. So good on those 11 states. Seven states have considered a ban, but have not passed one. And then there was even federal legislation that was introduced in 2018, but it died in committee in the Senate. 
and the House, not surprising given the current political climate. But both bills were reintroduced in June of 2019 and no further movement or updates have happened there. And I was checking on the congressional bill tracker, but it's not showing any movement. But hopefully we can get some federal legislation going that bans these gay and trans panic defenses because it's just ridiculous, ludicrous to me that that you can use that as a defense for harming someone. We're in perfect Sorry agreement. that introduction was so right. long. Um, a lot of information that we needed to get into before we discuss this case. And so when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for this, I originally was going to go with this little fluffy French case because I speak French, love French. But then I was like, no, we need to do something that's a little more has a little more weight given everything that's been going on in the world and trying to advocate as much as I can um, with the platform that I'm given. So I decided to look into the crime, the murder of Mercedes Williamson. And so my information for this section comes from a BBC, I don't want to call it a documentary because it's clearly like a true crime show because it is a little sensationalized at points but it's called Love and Hate Crimes. I also got information from articles from True Crime and then the Sun-Herald out of Biloxi, where the reporter Margaret Baker was the one who did most of the research on this case and was the one to really bring it out into the public eye in the way that it deserved to be brought out. I'm getting ready to launch into this. Does anybody need a break before we do this? I'm good. I'm, I'm very I'm good. excited yeah. to hear this story. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> All right. So Mercedes was described by her aunt as fun, loving, honest, a very strong woman and strong headed. She said that she wanted to go to California and do the famous people's hair and makeup because she could do a better job than them other people could. And she wanted to be famous for making people famous. <laughs> that is a direct quote from her aunt. Um, her best friend, Destiny Allen, also said that she was loving and sweet. But Mercedes' life was pretty difficult. Family was difficult to say the least. Her dad was anti-gay, anti-transgender persons. And she was never fully accepted by her family and would be punished for just being her. And so she had to leave home. It's apparent that all of her relationships were a little difficult. Her friends in Love and Hate Crimes still dead name her in that episode when talking about the past. And for me, I want to truly believe that it comes from a lack of understanding. This is the Deep South, a very religious area that is sort of stuck in some older ways. I am by no means saying that religion is always stuck in the older ways. Um, Wayne, we've talked about this a little bit and we'll talk about it a little more later. But I really think that it comes from a lack of understanding, but it does hurt this story and her cause and the cause of all people who transgender people who are um, portrayed in the media as something that they're not. And so I just think it's important to address that. There was definitely a troubled side to Mercedes as well. There's evidence that she had a $200 a day crack habit and that she engaged in prostitution. I'm not shaming here at all. I'm just giving the information so that we get a full picture of what her life was like. Addiction isn't easy and maintaining that in the cycles that you fall into when that happens is not easy either. And when you throw trauma in on top of that, we don't always make the best decisions. So she didn't have it easy at all. Love and Hate Crimes interviewed a man named Jimmy Atkins. He occasionally let her crash at his place. 
He said she was a good person, not a bad bone in her body, but she was involved with the party crowd and was doing meth and he didn't really want to have anything to do with it. And so she moved on from his home. And then at some point in all of that, she meets an absolute jackass named Josh Vallum. The first time they hung out, they went to her place to smoke. She, he said she kept her distance, but he encouraged her by saying, you can sit next to me. Typical. And then they become a typical couple. They dated for about two months. They saw each other two to three times a week. Josh says they didn't have sex. He thought she was a virgin, kind of a good girl. Although with the drug habit, I don't really know how we get there and that she just wasn't ready, but that they did engage in other sexual activity. Mm. Her friends straight up dispute this um, and say that they were indeed having sex. They were in the home when that was happening and that Josh definitely knew everything. And we're going to put a pin in that to use a Wayne face <laughs> and come back later. <laughs> I was very proud of myself for getting that in there. No. Right, I, so let's talk about I'm, this ass hat, Josh. I'm gushing with pride. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I spent most of this show literally wanting to punch him through the TV. And I'm not a person that believes in violence, but he is just straight up gross. And it just like, I just wanted to punch his face every time he was on there. And he was the focus of the episode. So anyway, Josh was a member of the Latin Kings gang and he was pretty high up in their ranks. And this particular game gang has a pretty strict anti-LGBTQ code. They actually have a law within their, I guess, gang constitution. I don't know what gangs have, but whatever. But Josh brought Mercedes to hang out with his friends, with the gang members. So, like, I don't understand where the disconnect in his stupid brain was. But they knew about their relationship, but not that Mercedes was a transgender woman. It's speculated that Josh was really worried that the gang would find out and that he'd be punished for being gay. And at this point, Josh launches into this whole thing about how he grew up sheltered. And he states that he only watched Disney movies until he was 10. And I was like, um, hello, you and everybody else until they were 10. I don't understand what you're getting at. But right. His family life wasn't the best either. But this is by no means an excuse for what happens. His mom went to prison on drug charges. He wound up having to live with his dad. It seems like things were a little tense there. Although his dad does seem like a stand-up guy, as we'll see momentarily. All right. So they date for about two months and then they break up. On May 30th of 2015, Josh sees Mercedes walking down the street. He was at a friend's house. He sees her walking down the street and he goes and picks her up in her car, his car and says that he wants to take her to his dad's house for a picnic. So he drives to his dad's property. There's no one there. They start hooking up. He says this is the first time that he's aware that she has male anatomy. And he says he snapped. He freaks out. Mercedes gets up and runs from the car. At one point, it was a little unclear whether it happened in the car or outside of the car because we really only have Josh's story at this point. And I don't necessarily believe him at all for most of this. But at one point, he tases her and then he stabs her with a pocket knife. He continues to go after her. She tries to escape chasing her. At one point, he knocks her down. He goes back to the car and gets a hammer. And this is when he hits her in the head. He says three times until she was dead. And this is when he says he comes out of his blackout, realizes what he's done, 
right? And instead of trying to do the right thing, he attempts to hide the body. He places her face down in a wooded portion of the property and covers her with some debris that was around. Then he gets in the car and drives from Mississippi to the Alabama Gulf Coast, quote unquote, screaming at himself. He says he's freaked out and doesn't know what to do. And I'm like, boo freaking who, asshole? Maybe you just shouldn't have killed her in the first place. Absolutely. Maybe somebody uh, should have kicked you in the dick and uh, yeah. hold your ass off to prison. Jesus Christ. Right? So he admits that he could have stopped himself, but he didn't know why he didn't. We all know why he didn't. He was scared. So he actually went into the house and saw his brother before he left. And so his dad calls him later and wants to know where he is because his brother had told his dad that Josh came into the house covered in blood. And at this point, Josh admits what he did to his dad. And his dad tells him that he needs to do the right thing. But dad, I guess, didn't necessarily trust that he would and calls the sheriff on his own. Good, Good so for his dad. Yes. Actually Good for dad. Yes. And it's got to be so hard. And we're going to talk about family impact in a minute. But I, I just can't imagine having to make that call on your child. But he did the right thing. And so she's not out there just exposed to the elements for longer than, than at this point already she should be. So the police come to the property and they find Mercedes face down, clearly deceased, wearing a tank top and a bra. And with ink polished on her fingernails. So at first they think that they are dealing with an assigned female at birth person. Then they discover that she has male anatomy and say, quote unquote, this is going to be a little bit different. Now, I do give the investigator credit because he did say that it didn't change the job that they had to do. And I realized that these issues come with some baggage in the Deep South. But the investigators, at least investigator that was interviewed for love and hate crimes, made it a point to say that I was going to do my job because that's what needed to be done. When the case first becomes public, though, the police didn't state that she was transgender or that she was a transgender person. Instead, they call her a young man and dead name her in all of the articles. Now, this could have been very beneficial to Josh as when it comes to defense and motive and all of that, but we'll see why it wasn't later on. But it's so important that law enforcement get the truth out there and not the truth that they see, but that individual's truth. Because she was a woman. She did not identify as a man. She had not used that name in quite some time. And so her truth was not told in the beginning. And it could have really been how justice was served for her. And so I think it's important to tell these stories so that we hold law enforcement accountable for making sure that the right information gets out there and not what is deemed the quote unquote right information. Before the case can go to trial, Josh straight up pleads guilty to first degree murder, which carries an automatic life sentence. This is almost unheard of, especially since he could have used the trans panic defense, which would have been an effect for him and probably could have gotten off with any of his peers in the time and the area that the trial would have happened in. But there was more evidence that he most likely didn't want to come out. Porn was found on his phone with naked men, a variety of different kinds. 
And though he claims it was planted there by the FBI, and I wrote insert eye roll here because the <laughs> FBI didn't plant that. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, that's what they're doing with their time. They're hacking into your phone and making it look like you're gay. Yeah. That's exactly what they want to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and he says this several times. And I'm like, dude, nobody's believed you the first time you said it. They're not going to believe you the third and fourth time you said it. But anyway. So he probably knew that a trans panic or gay panic defense wouldn't hold up once that came out and once Mercedes friends testified to their relationship. And so he straight up pleads guilty, goes to prison. And this is where the series Love and Hate Crimes sort of picks up his story. He's a real piece of work. He does a whole lot of victim blaming and you just want to punch him in his lying mouth the whole time he's on the screen. I'm not going to repeat a lot of what he said. At one point, he tried to hang himself in prison because he said Mercedes appeared to him and was haunting him, I guess, and he just couldn't take it. He also fears retribution in prison from his gang. And he also likes to quote the Bible a whole lot. And at one point, he says that he knows Mercedes is in hell because he didn't know what her status with the Lord was. And then next to this, I just wrote rant in capital letters. So here we go. He has no say in whether she's in hell or not. Like I, this whole religion aspect to it, he quotes the Old Testament a whole lot, but seems to really miss the whole point of the New Testament and Jesus and love, but whatever. At one point he refers to his gang as his religion. And I'm like, you don't get to quote the Bible and like bring that up. If you're going to say that you have another religion, because in case you missed it, that's one of the 10 commandments too, but whatever. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) it's over. I just, I can't with that stuff. love people just love Mm -hmm. and you don't get to judge anyone else no one else is supposed to judge you all we have to do is love one another and the world would just be such a much better place if we could just get that through our heads anyway that's right So they show this really heartbreaking interaction with his dad between Josh and his dad And it makes you realize the impact on both sides of this. Like, I don't care about Josh at all. He's a garbage human for a variety of reasons. But his dad sits down with him and he says, you know, I can never even get a picture of you again. So he's like, all of my memories essentially will stop with what happened before. And it just brings home that Josh not only took a life... But he altered so many others in ways that just can't be undone from Mercedes' friends and family that were actually part of her life to his own family and the implications and the impacts there. And to just not think about any of that and to just do what you want to do because it's going to make your life easier. It's just beyond me when you just look at, at the impact that, that this could have far-reaching, not not just for the victim. The next set of information comes from a justice.org article that I found. So the federal government decides to bring hate crime charges against Josh under the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009. So going back to why we got all of that background information at the beginning. On December 21st of 2016, Josh pled guilty to a hate crime. Now get this. In his interviews, he acknowledges a consensual sexual relationship with Mercedes, says that he knew she was transgender, he kept it a secret, 
and decided to kill her when he learned that a friend had found out about Mercedes and he was worried that that friend was going to tell everyone else. So I all of knew that- it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> it button. There we go. <laughs> Uh, yeah. In light of all of that, he receives an additional 49 years on his sentence. Now, this is really important because it marks the first conviction for a crime against a transgender person under this hate crime act. And the years added to this life sentence aren't important, but the meaning behind them most assuredly is. And the government was actually able to prosecute this or would have been able to prosecute it if he hadn't just straight up pled guilty. And now, Something that I warned you, Wayne, about a while ago, my Jeff Sessions rant, because at the time, Jeff Sessions was the attorney general. And so in response to the sentencing, Jeff Sessions said, and I quote, Today's sentencing reflects the importance of holding individuals accountable when they commit violent acts against transgender individuals. The Justice Department will continue its efforts to vindicate the rights of those individuals who are affected by bias-motivated crimes. Now, take this issue with a grain of salt because Jeff Sessions doesn't care about LGBTQ people. He has actively sought to undermine the rights of the LGBTQ community his entire career. He is against gay marriage. He wanted to criminalize gay sex, which is a stupid term was pro-don't ask, don't tell, and actively opposed the legislation that made this conviction possible. He actually voted against passing this hate crime bill. And the Human Rights Campaign actually has a whole ass pamphlet on Jeff Sessions, if you (laughs) care to go look, not that he actively matters anymore, because thankfully he's no longer in charge of anything. So let's end with Mercedes. Her father said that he couldn't afford to bury her, and gave away her ashes. I doubt that that is true because of the contentious relationship that they had. And so she currently rests at a friend's house in a box. There was no memorial service because there was no money, which I also call BS on because you can have a memorial service with no money. Her friends are still scared to speak about who she was. And Margaret Barker, who was the reporter from the Sun-Herald that sort of brought all of this to light, says, quote, it's not an easy life if you're different in the South. And as far as this case is concerned, that is true and can be seen in how the end of Mercedes' life played out. And so I wanted to tell this story because she deserves to be known for herself and memorialized appropriately. And hopefully progress continues and we can move toward a more loving and just society where people are accepted for who they are and not who someone else thinks they should be. And that's the story of Mercedes Williamson. That was amazing. Yes, that was very well, well said. Well, everything. So good. So great. Yeah, I can speak from some personal experience having uh, been an out and proud gay man who lived in the South in the early 2000s forward into, I guess I left there about 2014. It is a very kind of, should I be watching my back, uncomfortable sort of feeling day to day. And I imagine that a lot of people feel that way in a lot of areas of the country, but there's just something very specific and very good old boy and very like Southern traditional, like very ingratiated into like religion and whatnot that that is taking place there. Hold on. 
I actually really wanted to tell you this. I was watching this like Bill Maher documentary, that ridiculous one. I just love all kinds of documentaries. And I wanted to throw this quote out here just because I wrote it down because it was so funny and it kind of ties into everything we were just talking about. And there's one where he's talking to a Republican U.S. senator and he's like trying to describe why he's a huge Christian and all of the things that he's saying. Bill Maher's like, you know, that's kind of ridiculous. Like, I mean, you have to be smarter than that. And he, the senator literally says, you don't have to pass an IQ test to be in the Senate. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, he just admitted that. And he basically just called himself dumb. <laughs> Thought it was pretty funny. Yeah. And, and I'm by no means trying to lump everyone into a category. Like, I'm not saying that all Southerners believe this way. I'm not, clearly, I'm not saying that all Christians believe this way because I am one and, and sure. I don't. It's just that, that, that there are pockets of that that are still very prevalent. And clearly, given everything that's gone in our, on in our country recently with a variety of marginalized groups, there's a long way to go. And it takes people being brave enough to actually stand up and speak out. I just, it's work that needs to be done. And I'm trying to find ways to do that in an inclusive manner. And so I just want to thank you guys for letting me do this. Um, it's, It's helped me to understand some issues better and to know that there are people out there that care. I also really liked your point too, that you kind of brought up about how people can almost be victims of circumstance, like the uneducated side, like some people I feel have the views that they have because it's all they know. And while it's not always an excuse, it's something that we can simply try to understand that like people think differently because that's just what they know. That's what they've been around their whole lives. So I appreciate you bringing that up too. I think it gives us a starting point to bridge some of those gaps because It's just like in today's day and time, there's really no excuse for being uneducated on the issues, but there are people that clearly still are. And it's up to us to, to kindly, but maybe forcefully (laughs) help bring them to what they need. (laughs) And I think it's very important for the people who maybe are uneducated with regard to these issues to see people like yourself who they can maybe identify with a little easier than say someone like Ashley or I or other members of marginalized groups. I think it's more important for these people to see the allies and the people who do identify as Christian and the people who are cisgender, heterosexual, like people using what the platform that you have to say, hey, this is correct. Despite what you've been taught and despite what you maybe have heard, this is correct. And it really just boils down to people being people and people loving each other. So I appreciate so much that there are people like you in the world who are doing that and saying that and that are actually making a difference just being your authentic self and leading by example. That wasn't heavy at all. No, not at all. I do have one more question for you though, Amy. Where can we find your podcast? Because... That was all perfection. Right? That was wonderful. You should be doing this all the time. (laughs) Well, I ain't got time for a podcast right now. Don't, I won't lie. I have thought about it. Yeah. Um, And if it happens, I'll let you know, but that's not in the cards right now. (laughs) Okay. I am so grateful that we had this chance to first and foremost, meet you. 
but also to get uh, just like a look into into who you are as a person, like uh, some clear insight into your soul. And I feel so blessed and so fortunate. So thank you so much for being here with us today and telling that story and giving me yet another reason in my day-to-day life to believe that there is more good in this world than I sometimes am convinced that there is. So thank you very much for that. You're here. I feel the same way about you guys. So uh, thank you, <laughs> you so know, much. We're just blessed. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So if nobody has anything else, this has maybe been a nice segue into the time. Oh, oh, oh. And I also want to say that I think that worked out kind of perfectly in the fact that we did start with Stonewall and kind of where the community started with regard to the oppression and the marginalization and how difficult it was to even like make any sort of progress forward into then kind of specifically speaking about like transgender women and transgender women of color and whatnot into your stories, which I feel like that was serendipitous. No, it was serendipitous. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, that's all I have. If nobody else has anything else, then maybe we do that thing that we do where we tell everybody where they can find us and how they can love us. Yeah. We are on Twitter, on Instagram, not really on Facebook all that much, but we're there. And then we've got our Patreon, like we like to mention. You can dive into the DMs, all those places at Slay Queens Pod or slayqueenspod at gmail.com if that's your thing. Did I do it all? (laughs) Yeah. And we would hope that you would share us on your social medias if you enjoy the show. We would hope that if you enjoy the show that you would rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you are listening. Uh, Mm -hmm. Good ratings and reviews, all the love because... (laughs) That just gets us out there to reach more people and grow the queendom, which we're always talking about. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that is all I have. Is there one other important thing that we want people to do? Maybe I'm not, I don't know. Amy, do you know? <laughs> I know. We want you to go out and slay queens, but not each other. That is correct. <laughs> That is absolutely yes. correct. Go out and slay, just not each other. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I'm going away, but I won't come back on a lonesome railroad line. But I can't forget that sweet little girl who sleeps in the pines and the pines.